As we jump into Matthew chapter 2, and I want you to turn there with me now in in your Bible, uh, what we need to see as we're looking at the Apostle Matthew, as he's writing this out, is simply, to begin with, a history lesson in what has happened and what that has to say about what is continuing to happen, at least in the second chapter of Matthew. We're going to see that flowing all the way through the book of Matthew. And why is that important? Because going through the book of Matthew to you and to I is going to look a lot like a history lesson. Uh, and there's no way to get around it. There's no way to preach over it, to preach under it. To, we have to look at it. And there's so much history to be understood to know why we are where we are in Matthew 2. Why are we in Bethlehem? Why is there, uh, why is there an Edomite king? Uh, why do we talk about these wise men? And why is there this baby running away from the king? who calls himself the king of the Jews. All those things require for you and I an amount of understanding in the history. Just like we spent seven weeks on the genealogy of Christ, we need to zoom in and understand the rationale and the reasoning why Matthew saw it necessary to talk about these aspects of the birth of Christ to help us understand that Jesus is the king that has come. That Jesus is the one who has come to save us from our sin. We have to know that. Uh, But from a practical perspective, what this teaches us is what it looks like to have true worship. So we're going to learn this morning as we look at Matthew 2 is the fact that we have a group of men who traveled from the Mesopotamia who come in and who worship Christ because they recognize the signs, they recognize the time, that the Holy Spirit had spoken through the prophets that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And they came prepared to worship the king that they have come to know through Scripture. Now, it matters to you and me because when we talk about worship, worship is something that marks our lives as Christians. Everything about your life ought to reflect your worship of Christ But often what we find is something similar to what the opposite of that would look like. You come to church and you worship. You worship, you come in, you worship in fellowship with one another for what God has done. You sit here, we lift up praise to God through music. Hopefully, you see the preaching of God's word as a part of your worship and not that you are just a hearer in the preaching, but you are a participant in it by the way that you take it, you analyze it, you synthesize it, and you apply it to your own life We give you ways to do that and opportunities to do that even as you're sitting. But that you see all of this, even the giving of our our finances, even our service that we render to the local church, all those things are part of our worship. Uh, But oftentimes you do those because there is a template in place already when you walk through these doors uh, that your leaders and your pastors have uh, curated a way for you to automatically plug in into patterns of worship when you call Compass Bible Church home. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing when your church sets that template up so that you can easily walk into worshiping God through many avenues of your communal life in Christ. And if uh, we're going to be a good church, we're going to help you do that in some way outside of these walls. But the difference is, is you do not, you normally, most of us weren't born with this, a template of worshiping God outside of the communal gathering. Now, why is that important? 
simply because we can't see worship as something that is singularly done under the roof at 2415 Lifehouse Industrial Drive. This is, has to be something, like the wise men that we will see, uh, is a lifestyle. It's something that leaves these walls, and it's something that you and I understand is a part of, of every avenue of our life. If we're going to worship God, it has to be through all the areas of our life. And we might find it uncomfortable even when we get in here to sing praises to God, to sit under the teaching of God's word, for a pastor to say, this is what God's word says, let's go do it, uh, when the rest of your life isn't in the patterns of worship anyway. Uh, you would find it much easier to do the things that we do here when these are things that you're doing throughout your life anyway. That's why it's important for us this morning to dive in to Matthew chapter 2. Because as we talk about worship, we, we need to define worship because worship simply can't just be defined by what you do. And this is sometimes our problem as we think of worship. We automatically go to, well, here's what I do. I mean, I, I, do, I give, I serve, I attend. Uh, you know, I, I read the Bible at home. I pray. I try to raise my kids to know the Lord. But the problem is, if that's your only definition of worship, is you forget that a worship isn't what you do. It's a response to what has already been done. You see what I'm saying? You're not, the, you're not the object of worship. Worship isn't for you. Worship is for God. And it's a response to what he has already accomplished. And so, therefore, we can begin worship in everything that we do as a response to what Christ has done, how God has brought salvation unto our earth. Now, you see the connection to the wise men. Right? Even as we start looking at this text, uh, worship isn't just something that they were doing, or even when you look at Herod's life, not something that he withheld. It's his either neglect of a response, in the case of Herod and all the uh, illegitimate kings, uh, and his lack of a response to what Christ has done. And to the wise men, it's simply they're responding to what has been done in Scripture and what is to come. And so in the same way, our response to worship is the same. We respond to what God has revealed in Christ through Scripture for what he has done, and our worship continues because of what will be done. See, we're on the same page so far. That's in the context of which we jump into Matthew chapter 2, because we're never going to understand the desire to worship, especially desire to worship Christ, until he's the one on the throne. We see this all throughout Scripture the only people who will worship Christ are the ones that submit to the fact that it's his throne and not theirs. And in the same way, true worship can only begin when you step off the throne of your life and recognize the one who truly belongs there. So as we look to the word of God, let us remember that. Look at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, first you need to ask, well, how did these wise men even know that this was going to happen? Right? This didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, this isn't a story. This is a historical account of what really happened. And so we have to get to the bottom of, okay, what's the background in which this information can be truly understood? First and foremost is this. When we look at where Jesus was born, we see that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. This is important, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew is creating a geographical apologetic. And it's simply this, that he is creating a rationale of why Jesus can be the king, and here's the proof, because he was born in the city of the king. Like he was born in Bethlehem in Judea, just like King David was, just like where David 
was anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He was anointed in Bethlehem. And so we understand according to that and according to the prophets out of Micah that Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. And so we put it up front as we, after we look at the genealogy up front. Look, this is where Jesus was born. Makes him a rightful heir. In the right, comes from the right line, born in the right place. And so we have to understand that in the... In the um, for us to look at the patterns of Scripture to see that Jesus is the heir to the throne. Now, also what he is doing, like David and like many of the kings that came from Judah, uh, Jesus had enemies, had enemies and usurpers to the throne. And in the same way that you read in Kings and Chronicles, we see, we see that again even here in the text with the next person who enters the narrative after Jesus was born in Galilee in the days of Herod the king. So Herod the king, there's a lot of Herods in the New Testament, a whole family of them. Uh, but this one you would know as Herod the Great, the son of Antipas. Only important for you to understand that King Herod was not just a random Antipater. Did I say Antipas? Antipater. That's a terrible... Yeah, his father's name was Antipater. There you go. Uh, Herod the king, because he was a Idumean. He wasn't just a random, and you need to understand that he wasn't just a random usurper of the throne. He was a particular usurper of the throne. Uh, he didn't just uh, show up on the scene, and he has nothing to, to do with the rest of the biblical narrative. There's actually something you need to know about Herod the Great. He's an Idumean, and if you know what that means, you understand that he is a descendant of the Edomites. And the Edomites find their origin in Esau. So we look back, and see why you have to know history. We look back at Scripture, we look at Genesis 25, uh, and we see something happen. The Lord says to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and the two peoples from within you shall be divided. So there's already a prophetic promise that there will be two nations that come from you, Rebekah, and they're going to be divided. All right? These two nations, one would be Jacob, or what we know as Israel. That's what God changed his name to, Israel. And then we have the 12 tribes. You have that nation. And then you also are going to have this, this other nation. And this nation is called, uh, when you look at Genesis 25, that nation is called Edom because that's what they call Esau after he sells his birthright, Edom. And so now you have these two nations that God says will be against one another acting throughout Scripture. And we see it uh, in Kings, first, uh, 2 Kings 8. We see it talked about in Psalm 137. But here in the context, our immediate con context, you see what we will call Matthew's historical apologetic of this line, this conflict, and this dissension continually uh, going between the rightful heir of the throne uh, and the line of Esau, or what we see through Scripture in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. You see how this historically lines up with what has already been going on through Scripture. And so, therefore, here we see Matthew giving us the historical apologetic of why Jesus is the one. Because here's what we see. Uh, we see the seed of woman, which we've talked about from Genesis 3.15. Uh, there was a seed that God had promised that would be the seed that crushes the head of the serpent. But then we have the seed of the serpent, which finds itself first in the serpent in Genesis, uh, in the first few chapters of Genesis. But then we see that seed going throughout uh, Scripture, particularly uh, when it comes to figures like Cain right, and Abel. Then we see Seth being uh, the continued seed 
of woman after Abel died. And then throughout scripture, you see many figures that take on uh, the mantra of the seed of the serpent. And you have that same thing happening here where you have Herod, the illegitimate king who's trying to usurp the throne that rightly belongs to the seed of the woman. But yet you now have the seed of the serpent pursuing the rightful, legitimate king, trying to kill him and usurp the throne. So historical apologetic is simply this. To a first century Jewish reader, they're going to say, this sounds like just a continuation of, of first and second kings. This is like third kings. We're just reading in Matthew, third kings. Uh, simply because Matthew is trying to nail down, this is the one. Look, the whole narrative is the same. Nothing has changed here. The same things are going on over and over and over again, which, voila, Jesus is the king who has come. And so we see that, and it continues here in Matthew 1 and 2, with Jesus being pursued by Herod, the seed of the serpent who wants Jesus dead. Now, so therefore we have the uh, geographical apologetic firmly in place. He's born in the right place. For, he's born in the city of the kings. And then we also have this historical apologetic forming very, very well to show us that this is very familiar pattern of the king's, the king's histories throughout Israel and then we get to another representative group of people in, in verse 1. Uh, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they're saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw, we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. If you want a more of a, uh, cons- uh, I shouldn't say concise, if you want a more lengthened definition of the wise men, I preached on the wise men uh, last Christmas, you can go back into the sermon archive and go there, and you can find a, a more lengthened description of the wise men. But here's what you need to know about the wise men. Uh, they were highly esteemed men of history, predominantly from Persia and Babylon. You see them most specifically in uh, the prophet Daniel, where Daniel both reigned or both led and, and ruled in, in some capacity in both the Babylonian uh, reign uh, and the Persian reign. And if you look at Daniel 2, I believe verse 8, that particularly shows you how Daniel fits into this whole history because he was made ruler of, you guessed it, the wise men. And so, undoubtedly, if you're a God-fearer, what you're going to do with the people that you're over is you're going to instruct them in God's Word. Right? Hopefully, wherever you are right now, wherever you're working, however you are applying uh, worship to your own life, that includes you as a boss or as a leader. You are instructing people in the Lord's Word so that they can truly worship as well. And undoubtedly, the case happened here uh, where Daniel became the leader of these wise men, and he instructed them in the prophecies in the Old Testament and the law. Uh, and a prophecy, perhaps Numbers 24, uh, is something that they remembered in the teaching that had been handed down from the wise men throughout history. Uh, when you look at Numbers 24, 15 through 18, you might find the historical underlining reason why the wise men came to Jerusalem. In Numbers 24, in verses 15 and 18, it says this. It's an oracle of Balaam. Balaam, also a non-Jewish seer from the east, right? You can offset parallelism between Balaam's prophecy uh, and the wise men who were also from the east who came uh, to find Jesus. You have this uh, non-Jewish seer from the east of Balaam, and this is what he says uh, as King Balak has tried to get him to prophesy evil against Israel, God has made it where Balaam can only pronounce blessings. You remember Balaam because you remember the donkey, right? And you use that a lot, in, and I'm sure in your arguments with people. You're stubborn and it's a donkey. Well, even that donkey knew how to take God's word and apply it. Uh, all that aside. 
Numbers 24, this is what Balaam says. A star shall come out of Jacob. There it is, a star. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And listen, remember all of the, uh, all of the uh, theological and historical underpinning of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right? We see a star coming out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Do you see that? We're not making this stuff up. It's literally just the, the, the theological, historical uh, meta-narrative of Scripture that the one to come is going to crush the forehead of the seed of the serpent. Of course, Moab uh, and the sons of Sheth and, and obviously people who had many issues with Israel and particularly in verse 18. Look at this. And Edom shall be dispossessed. There was the promise there's going to come a time where uh, the usurpers of the legitimate throne of God the Davidic covenant, those on that throne, will dispossess those who have illegitimate throneships, uh, including Edom and Moab. And this seed of woman will crush the forehead of the seeds of the serpent. Now, if you want to talk more about the star, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, uh, particularly because uh, we're not really concerned about whether it was a meteor, whether it was a divine light that led them. Uh, it's not really the concern of the text. The concern of this, the text is we see it in Scripture, we see the wise men acted on it, and, and that's, that's the point of the Scripture. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, but Balaam, like the wise men, right, was, was pressed by an evil king, right, Balak, intent on destroying the seed of the woman. And I want you to see that parallelism, because all the time what Matthew's want to do is draw your attention to the Old Testament and quickly get you back to the New Testament as Christ has fulfilled those things and how Christ is parallel to those things and how so many ways uh, you can, they can believe. Do you believe this is the king that has come? Because, look, it's very familiar with everything else that's going on. He's not just a random figure. He's the fulfillment figure that they have been waiting on uh, for, uh, for centuries. And so... What you see is these, both of these wise men, both Balaam and the wise men, refused to collaborate uh, and took the side of God's people, which is the whole point here, is when we look at the Magi and we look at what they were doing, even as they were face-to-face with King Herod, uh, they meticulously looked for the rightful heir. And that's, that's important as you're looking at the text. They didn't just see uh, King Herod, right, who was by Rome pronounced king of the Jews. I mean, Rome said this was the king of the Jews. Uh, Instead, they were meticulously looking for the rightful heir according to Scripture. Well, Scripture said that this is when the king of the Jews would come, and this is who the king of the Jews would be. Uh, and so they understood that the throne wasn't Herod's, right? And we must understand the rightful throne wasn't Herod's. It wasn't Balak's. Uh, as a matter of fact, the rightful throne in our own lives is not even us. And what we got to make sure that we're going to do is, point number one on your outline, you need to take your place in Christ's kingdom. When it comes to the throne, and I, we talked earlier about worship beginning after you step off the throne. In order for you to take your place in Christ's kingdom, you have got to recognize whose the throne is. It's not your throne. Right? This wasn't Herod's throne. This was Christ's throne. And in the same way, in our own lives, we must understand, like the wise men, that we're going to go seek and we're going to find the one who truly belongs there. Now, there is a presupposition you have to understand when you're looking at this point. Simply this. The wise men understood that it wasn't their throne all along. Right? They, never, they never even stepped in saying, well, this is my throne. And they never had to make the conscious decision to get off, at least in the text. But the problem with so much of our lives, because we understand that Christ came uh, to, in his 
first arrival, uh, not to deal with governing bodies, but to deal with the spiritual decay of humanity. And he's coming back in his second return to deal with all the government, uh, the government woes and all of the, the, the physical issues that, that ail the world. We, we understand that's coming. But for us to look and say, yeah, there is coming a time, and we'll get to that in Psalm 72, uh, where Christ is going to come, and he's going to make all the bad things good and all the wrong things right, and he's going to come exalt himself above the nations and the governments. The government will be on his shoulders. We understand that's going to happen, and that is to come. We believe that and trust wholeheartedly in that. But now, when we understand why Christ came, he came, according to the theme of Matthew, to save the world from their sins. Right? And so we first have to deal with the reality that our biggest sin is the idolatry of sitting on our own throne. And we have to make sure and we have to be sure that if we're going to take our rightful place in Christ's kingdom, we must first get off the throne of our illegitimate kingdom. Right? Herod, Balak, all of the usurpers of the Davidic throne. Like We have to understand that it was never our throne to sit on. It's not your throne to sit on. It's not my throne to sit on. The good news of the gospel is simply that I have a place in Christ's kingdom if I would get off my throne and respond to the one who belongs there. You see that? That is the beauty of the gospel. This isn't take your place in Christ's kingdom, like go sit under the table, that's where you belong. This is no. Listen, the bad news is it's not your kingdom and it's not your throne. So get off of it. The good news is the one whose throne it is belongs there, and he has invited you to come sit at the table, just not in that throne seat. And the reality for you and I is we must look at Scripture and say, okay, I'm going to let him have his place, and he has invited me to come sit with him, but not as the ruler, not as the leader, not as the pilot, not as the captain, as a participant, as a child of God. Am I going to have responsibilities? Sure I am. Am I going to have roles to play? Sure I am, but it's not his. And too much in our lives, we want to sit on the throne of our own lives, and we wonder why life goes awry and amok and chaotic, because you continually try to sit in a place that was never yours to sit in to begin with. And so you need to take your place in Christ's kingdom. Jot this verse down, Psalm 72, particularly Psalm 72, 8 through 12. This psalm is looking forward to a day when the king of Israel has universal reign. That's why we understand and we believe uh, that there's going to be a physical reign of Christ here on earth. And we trust that. And, and Psalm 72 is looking forward to that day when it says here, 72, 8 through 12, uh, this uh, Davidic king is what it's talking about, a particular Davidic king that is to come. This is what we expect. May he have dominion from sea to sea. Right? So he's going to have dominion over, over all the earth. And from the river to the ends of the earth, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. See, we we must understand something about Christ if we're going to take our place in Christ's kingdom, which can be in so many ways our own practical and spiritual barriers in our lives, is we simply do not know or are willing to admit to who Christ is. We live in a culture that wants to diminish Christ. We live in a world that wants to make Christ more like us and less like he truly is. And with that becomes sometimes convoluted and misunderstanding uh, concepts of who Christ is. Right? My goal isn't to try to make Christ look more like me. My goal is to look at Christ for who he truly is. And when I look at the text, when I look at Scripture, 
It tells me that he is going to have kings fall down before him. The nations will serve him. As a matter of fact, the wise men who people in history have said were kings. I don't see that in the text, so I can't prove that. But the reality is, is they saw him for who he was, and the text sees him for who he is. And what I've got to make sure is that I can step off of my throne because of who Christ really is, you understand. If we have a low view of Christ, if we have a low view of who he is and what he has come to do, of course you're not going to step off the throne. Right? Because you don't see who it is, whose throne it is. Which I can get to a, another theological implication. It was never your throne to begin with. You're sitting on an illegitimate throne yourself. Christ is reigning all over everything and over the throne of your life. You just haven't admitted it yet. And either you will now or you will here. You see what I'm saying? All that aside, you must define and understand who Christ is. He is the one to come. He is the one who has come to deal first with sins. And he is the one who's going to return when all kings are going to fall down before him and all the nations will serve him. Now think about that. There's going to be someone, a, fig, a figure, his name is Christ, I mean Jesus. He's going to come and he's going to reign. And although right now you spend so much of your time not thinking about him or not trying to figure out how you can even in the here and now as our sins have been dealt with, as we're awaiting on this physical reign of Christ, you're not thinking about, well, how can I serve him now? But when you look at the text in Psalm 72, it does implicate you to think about, well, I can't just focus on worshiping in them. I've got to start serving him now. I've got to start worshiping now. Because although he's coming to deal with all, a lot of the, the physical things, he's coming to, to reign over the earth. What he has already done is sealed my life and my soul for eternity. And so therefore, my service that I rendered to him, my worship that I rendered to him, doesn't begin then. It begins now. The problem is, is I don't want us to be like the kings who are going to fall down before him because that's who he is and he's going to make himself known by that very clearly, but because we already know him now, because we already understand who he is now. And so we shouldn't have to wait for the, the physical reign of Christ on earth for us to finally get to a place where we say, oh, that's why I should let him sit on the throne. No, 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 no. You already know that now because the scripture testifies that that's who he is. And you and I can now, today, right now, begin serving him and responding in worship to him because of who he is and because of what he has done. And so I invite you to take your place in Christ's kingdom. And that is the first thing you need to do if you're going to take your place in Christ's kingdom is to understand that it's not yours and it was not your life is not yours. Right? Nothing. It's just all Christ. We'll get to more of that in a moment. But some people have such a myopic focus on their own illegitimate kingdom that they don't know what is to be meant by enjoying the presence of Christ's legitimate kingdom. Do you understand that? Right? You have so much focus on your investment of what you've created that you, like King Herod, or you, like uh, really uh, so many people in Scripture and so many people throughout history, you have such a focus on whatever you're building right here that when you think of Christ and you think about Christ, uh, his, res his responsibility... Uh, well, yeah, his stewardship over everything. And may I say our response to submit to him in all things. But yet you have this whole kingdom that you have illegitimately right here. And you can't think of uh, serving him and submitting to him. Because then that means you have to quit everything you're doing over here. Because you understood that none of it was worship to God. You, like King Herod have so much built up. You have so much invested in your own illegitimate kingdom that you won't worship him because you don't want to give up what you have. That's a problem. Right? We have to understand it's our responsibility to stop focusing on the illegitimacy of our own kingdom. Drop the pride. Right? Drop the arrogance. Right? 
drop, drop the fact that, yes, are you going to lose? Yes, Jesus says you're going to lose some things here on earth. He makes that very clear. But he also makes it clear that if you will lose your life here, if you would just give it away, you just give away your life here, right, you're going to save it. You're going to save it. He's going to save it. He's going to, re- he's going to redeem it. He's going to take care of it. But the promise is likewise, if you want to build your own kingdom here, and this is what you want, and this is where you are, and this is where you want to sit, you have an illegitimate kingdom, and the legitimate kingdom of Christ is going to come reign over all of it and dispossess everyone sitting on illegitimate thrones in our world. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. Right, if you allow Christ's rightful place in your life, it's going to free you to do exactly what you were created for. Right? And that's the beauty of worship and the beauty of the gospel is that when you will respond to it and you will sit and place yourself in the right place in the presence of Christ, it's going to free you, uh, might I say in, in your language, to find your purpose. Right? That's, that's what everyone wants, their purpose. Well, your purpose is simply in taking your place in Christ's kingdom and doing something particularly for Christ. And here's what it is. Look at verse 2. And the wise men said, we saw his star when it rose, and here's what we've come to do. We have come to worship him. Right? I love that. And there's a lot of things that the kings could have done. There's a lot of things that the kings could have planned. Uh, but they said, listen, we know who he is. We were taught. Daniel told us. We've passed it through the generations. We've taught over and over again these truths and these principles that are foretold by the prophets that the king has come. And I have come here not just to check it out, not just to peek over the fence, right? not just to lift up the veil. I have come to worship him. I've already decided it. It's his throne I have simply come to respond to what he has done and who he is, and I'm going to come and I'm going to worship. It means there's only two responses, at least in the text of Matthew, of of our response to Christ, and you find both of them in verses 2 and 3. We see the the wise men, they want to worship him, but look at Herod, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was Troubled. Isn't that often what happens right? when we have people who do not want to uh, submit to the authority and the rulership of Christ? Yeah, of course. When I say, no, I got my own life going, I'm very troubled that you're telling me that there's somebody else who deserves to sit there and it's not me. I don't like the fact that you're telling me that somebody else gets to tell me what to do and gets to lead me and gets to direct me and gets to, to create a plan and a will for me that is different than my own. When Herod heard this, He was troubled. He's not the only one. Continue reading in verse 3. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem with him. The very people, I love this, this is the distinction between the wise men who had a little bit of the self-revelation of God through the prophet Daniel, most likely, uh, in Israel who had all of the prophets, all of the law. When it was laid before them, They were troubled. The people who should have been the most excited and the most looking forward to the king that has come in his legitimate heir to the throne, who would sit on the throne and he would rule, and they were troubled. They should have been the most eager and joyful and excited people to say, we got to go check this out. It may be true. It may not be true. we got to go figure it out right now. we got to go. Let's go. We ain't got no time to sit around. That isn't what happened. As a matter of fact, you have these Gentiles, these men from the east, these people who did not belong to the promises of God, who came to seek the king. Right? And that is, again, the theme of Matthew, is that uh, the people of God, that is Israel, 
when they were supposed to be the people of the promise, those who were supposed to respond to Christ turned him away and shunned him. And over and over again through the text of Matthew, you have Gentiles who don't belong to the promises, who continually came to him and said, I see you, I know you, I turn from my sin, and I trust you. Right? Over and over again, that's the theme of Matthew, that Christ has come for the nations. That Christ hasn't just come uh, for one particular group. That he has come. And, and I'll show you where it says it. Look at John 1. John 1, 11 through 14. John 1, 11 through 14. And it says, Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And there it is. Jesus showed up. All of Jerusalem's troubled. But to all who did receive him, Gentiles, that means if you're not Jewish, that means if you're in here, you're probably a Gentile. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen to this, verse 13. Who were born not of blood, right? It wasn't that you were born in the tribes of Israel, nor the will of the flesh. It wasn't keeping, it wasn't keeping the law. It wasn't earning your way to God, nor of the will of man. It's not because you said it. It's not because I said it. It's because God said it. That's what it says. But of God. It was God's will. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Does that sound like bad news to you? Sounds like a lot of good news, doesn't it? Sounds like the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come to save those who would do this, point number two, joyfully surrender their life. You need to joyfully surrender your life. Joyfully surrender your life. And it should be a joyful thing. And here's why. We say joyful. I remember my account, my salvation. I would eagerly uh, ask you to recollect your own salvation. You can joyfully Surrender your life when you understand the weight of your sin, right? The weight of you sitting on your own illegitimate throne. That's burdensome, isn't it? Well, what's burdensome is you trying to earn your way to God. That you understanding that there is a chasm between you and God, whether you can articulate it theologically or not, you understand that there is a separation between you and God, and it comes out in my relationships with people, it comes out in my thoughts, it comes out in my actions. I understand that there's something distinctly off about who I am. And when I finally see it come to life in Scripture, when when Scripture tells me and testifies that Christ has come to save people from their sin... And I read and say, he has come, and all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And I understand that I can surrender, that I can turn from my sin, my decrepit, my deplorable, my evil, the sin that has brought so much shame, at least here on earth, and not even the... You think of the eternal penalty of your sin. If it does this much damage here, imagine what it does to your relationship with God and the separation that that you would have between God for eternity. And I get to absolve all that by trusting in, in Christ, by turning from my sin, by laying it aside and being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's joy. 
Right? That's why I can joyfully surrender to Christ. Now, we talk about salvation. That, that's one part, and that is the beautiful part that is so important and fundamental to the Christian faith. But what is also just as fundamental to the faith of what we call justification, that you, you are saved in Christ, is also that you are sanctified in Christ, that you are continually being conformed into the image of Christ. Joyful surrender isn't just that I'm saved. Joyful surrender is Christ didn't leave me alone. He gave me a helper, and that helper convicts me of sin, of judgment, and of eternity and a life to come. And so, therefore, I, my joyful surrender isn't just that I'm a child of God, but that I get disciplined like a child of God, that I get the... Uh, the the blessings of children of God, that, I get, that I'm an heir of God. You see what I'm saying? You must, when we talk about worship, it's not just at church, it's not just when I'm saved, it's, it's an entire life. It's a life joyfully surrendered to God. Let me give you a parallel to the wise men's uh, position in this story. You can find it in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. You can at least jot it down if you can't flip there quickly. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The principle is simple. The kingdom of heaven is like this, right? that we see that it is nothing of more precious value. There is nothing of more remarkable value that exists than the kingdom of heaven. And my entrance into the kingdom of heaven is based solely on Christ. And so if that's what it means, and I understand that the, the, the pearl that is of great value is the kingdom, and so I'm willing to get rid of everything else so that I can sell it all, so that I can buy entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This isn't about good works. It's the, the point of the parable is simply this whatever it takes for entrance into the kingdom that's what I want to be about and the only thing that gets me interested in the kingdom is turning from my sin and trusting in Christ and I'm all about it I'm all about repentance and faith I'm all about the salvation that we have in Christ and guess what I'm all about I'm all about worshiping him in response to that grace that has been given to me you see why worship is so important if you think salvation is so important, then your worship should be so important. If you tell people how important the gospel is to your life, you should equally be telling people how important the rest of your worship in your life is important. Because you don't have one without the other. You don't have the kingdom of heaven without worship. And you don't have the Christian faith without worship. And it's not about the four-song set list that we play. It's about everything that you do in your life that Scripture points clearly. If you eat, whether you sleep, whether you drink, whether you work, when you're married, when you raise your kids, when you're, when you're generous. It's all about everything in my life singing the praise of Christ. That's why I call it joyful surrender. Right? You, can't, you, you, you just can't worship Christ when you don't have joyful surrender, when it's obligatory surrender, it's like, yeah, I got to be here. They told me I got to be here one hour a week. And they said sometimes I have to give, and I do sometimes. Like that, does that sound like somebody who sees the preciousness, the remarkable value of Christ? 
Absolutely not. And that's why your worship should be joyful. That's why we talk about you know, making sure that you're, you're, you're giving and it's done in a particular way. Now, your giving is not done with, with the grumbles. It's done with great joy. You're, I'm giving. Christ wants me to give. Of course I'll give. Give everything. Because he, what has he done? Who is he? Hmm. Come on, church. When we look at the joyful surrender of our life, that, that is what becomes a lifestyle of worship. Right? The joyful surrender, uh, it creates in you a, a lifestyle of worship, and it happens as we take God's self-revelation. Right? Self-revelation, is God revealing himself to you and I. That's how we learn how to have a lifestyle of worship, simply when we take what God has said about himself and how God has revealed himself to us and then also taught us how we ought to uh, commune back with him and participate with him being his children, then we understand how by acting in faith in every area of our life is worship to God. Just look at the look at text. Look at verse 4. Matthew 2, verse 4. And Herod, he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are no mean, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Of course, that quotes from Micah 5.2. Uh, but when it comes to God's self-revelation, you also have two responses. And these two responses from the text are always going to come from, obviously, uh, the seed of the serpent, which you see Herod. And, and unfortunately, along with Herod, you see the chief priests and the scribes along with them. Uh, and we obviously see that juxtaposed to the wise men. And the first one is this, two responses to God's self-revelation. Like Herod and the chief priests and the scribes, you can hear God's word and do nothing. Because in the text, that's what you see, isn't it? Uh, we'd like to know more, and I know people like this, I'm not even going to get into it, though. We want to know more about the Bible. We want to know more about God's revelation, but I don't really want to do anything with it. I just want to know more about it. Just give me some information, and, and that's it. Right? That's another sermon for another time. The point here is we only have two responses to God's self-revelation. You can come here just like the wise men, just like Herod, just like the chief priests, just like the scribes. They all had the same information in front of them. He's born in Bethlehem, and he has come to shepherd his people. And you have the Herod chief scribes said, all right, you guys go deal with it. And you have the wise men, right, the true worshipers, right, who hear God's word and they act on it. And you see that in Matthew 7 Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way to the place where the child was. You know why? Because that's what people who want to worship the king do. They hear the word, they hear the prophet, they hear the prophecy from Micah 5.2, and they say, he must be here, it must be time, and I must go. Because the king has come. And I'm not going to sit here any longer, I'm going to go after him. I put it this way in point number three on your outline. You need to act on the truth of God's word. Act on the truth of God's word. So much of, of our Christianity, so much of our faith uh, is very feeble. It's very, uh, very weak. And, and I'm afraid, as a pastor, as I meet with people every week, that it's a lack of the knowledge of God's word to act on it in worship. Right? I want to have more joyful worship, pastor. I want, I want to know what God wants. I just want to know more about it. Okay, well, he's given you his word. And he says, if you know his word and you apply his word, then you're worshiping. 
Then you are understanding who he is and understanding who we are and understanding the relationship between the creator and the created. You need to act on the truth of God's word. Here's a, here's a good way to do it. Go ahead and open up to Micah 5.2, just the rest of Micah. Uh, there's a couple of verses that the chief priests and the scribes didn't quote to probably the much chagrin of uh, Herod, as it turns out, uh, because who they were dealing with was something much different than I'm afraid Herod knew at the time. Micah 5, 2 through 5. But, O you, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth, and listen to this, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. Right? See that this quote, this Prophecy, this messianic prophecy uh, is important because we're not just talking about another Davidic heir. Right? We're not just talking about another heir to the throne because they were born in the right line. Of course, that was part of it. But there was something that distinguishes this messianic prophecy than just another king to come who's going to make things a little better. This one says that his coming forth was from of old, from ancient days. There's something Different about this one, because he can't be alive in the sense that you and I are alive. There's something supernatural about this king, about this ruler. This ruler, we don't qualify. The Davidic line cannot qualify to be this, because there is no supernatural way in which you are here from the ancient of times. There's something particular about this person that we need to get right. It says, it continues verse 3, Therefore... He shall give them up until the time when she was in, who was in labor has given birth. And in verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. You see how acting on the truth of God's word as we look at the rest of these two verses. Like, yes, this is the one. This is Jesus. Well, understand who Jesus is. He's the shepherd of his flock. He makes them dwell secure. His name shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Right? This at least gives you a framework to say, this is my relationship with Christ, and how I would live in relationship with him should produce these things in me. That I shall have peace with God through Christ. Well, of course I have peace with God through Christ. I also get this peace that comes uh, from Christ that people don't understand, a peace that comes from God, a peace that settles me, a peace that, that gives me, even in the turbulent times that I live in right now, gives me an, an ability because I have a shepherd that is in front of me and a shepherd that is leading me, I understand that I can dwell secure. Does that mean everything's going to be perfect in my life here? No, but it does because I have an understanding of Scripture to say, I trust in him, right? Though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fare no evil, for he is with me. Right? The relationship. And I, I keep talking about acting on the truth of God's word. Well, where does all this tie together? Simply this, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Do you see how when it comes to acting on the truth of God's word, it comes with your familiarity with Christ your shepherd. The peace in your own life, even if you say you're a Christian in here, say, I have no peace, I know no peace. Well, we need to talk about your response to the gospel, number one. Okay, let's benefit the doubt. You are. Okay, are you familiar with Christ? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
Or there is something about the Christian who is so familiar with Christ when he calls, they answer. I grew up on a farm. I grew up with goats. I grew up with all kinds of herd animals. And one of the most aggravating things in my young childhood was when my grandpa would tell me to go get the goats because they go out in all these pastures and they eat all day. And, uh, and I go out there and I'm calling for them, just yelling, just come on, get over here. Come back. It's time for dinner. Time to go to bed. Not a single one of them. They wouldn't even flinch. And it's so aggravating. And then my, my grandfather would come out and he would holler. And they all look up and they would just start running back. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, is this, is, uh, but what did, what did we understand? He was their shepherd. They knew his voice. They were familiar with him. They trusted in him. They followed him. You see, you and I, when we have God's word in front of us, we see it. Micah 5, 2 through 5 explained fully in the incarnation of Christ and his exaltation as he's before the right hand of the Father. And he's going to come and he's going to rule first here and then for eternity. We can say, all right, then I get to worship him. Now, I don't have to wait when all the kings of the world are going to fall down before him, when all the nations are, I'm going to do it now because I know him. I'm familiar with him. I recognize him. I hear his voice, and I know his voice because his word, his word declares it to me, and I just want to follow him. And that's worship, our response to our great shepherd. Let's pray. God, my prayer is for, is for souls in here who don't know you, that they would turn from their sin, that they would step off their illegitimate throne, and God, and diligently seek you, the legitimate heir to the throne of the universe and to all of those who bear the image of God. And I pray that they would, but I pray also, God, as they turn from their sin and trust in you, that those who call this church home, who are part of your flock, would be the kind of flock that care about the way that they worship you, that would understand that the rest of the flock in here, God, is responsible both for our corporate worship and to help one another as we walk in faith and trust in you. And I pray, God, that we would learn how to joyfully surrender our lives. That we look, even as I did, sitting on the couch yesterday watching a football game, that, God, how does this worship you? And then come to the conclusion, if it doesn't, turn it off. You know, it, it comes to a reality in our lives when, when we take serious the time in our life as it reflects our thoughts and our desires about you. So God, help us do that. God, give us wisdom and understanding. God, thank you for your word that declares your truth clearly. God, give us, uh, I pray, wisdom and discernment even in our life groups this week to practically look at our lives and see how we could joyfully surrender to you. To, to recognize that you are the legitimate king and that we too, God, as uh, members of your family, could declare your truth uh, and look forward to, to when you're going to come and reign over the earth and then in eternity with the new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.